Hello and welcome to Miss D's Lunacy. Today's guest has dedicated over 38 years of his life to the preservation of wildlife refuges throughout the country. He is Chief Operating Officer for National Wild Refuge Association, a nonprofit focused exclusively on protecting and promoting the 850 million acres of the world's largest network of land and waters set aside for wildlife conservation. Amazing. Here to tell us about the issues and mounting challenges of concerning, conserving not only America's, but the world's wildest plants, fish, animals, and their habitats. Here is Mark Nuseas. Hello. Hello, Mark. Wonderful to have you here. It is so interesting what you do, and it's such an important part of our country, our world, and our climate, and everything else that you do. I think it's wonderful. So I want to understand, 850 million acres is a lot of area. It's huge, and the majority of that is marine acreage. It's so uh, the refuge system started off with a five-acre refuge at Pelican Island back in 1903 when there was market hunting of wading birds for they were using the feathers for women's hats. And President Rose, Teddy Roosevelt uh, had friends that were with the Audubon Society up here in Sebastian, Florida, and they invited uh, Theodore Roosevelt to come down and from the river, they could see the hunting going on. And so President Roosevelt was an avid conservationist. I mean, he loved to hunt and fish, but he was an avid conservation and wanted to protect wildlife. And so by presidential proclamation, he established the Pelican Island National Wildlife Refuge. That was the beginning in 1903. And from that, that's grown from one tiny refuge to 567 refuges all across the country. There are refuges from the Caribbean. We have refuges in the Virgin Islands, in Puerto Rico. We have refuges that are as small as a quarter acre up in Minnesota that go all the way up to 19.3 million acres of the Arctic refuge in Alaska. And then we have, we have islands out in the Pacific, Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge. And so that, that's about 150 million acres of landmass, which is still huge. But then on top of that, back Oh, probably it started before that, but President Bush uh, added a significant amount of acreage by creating the Papahanaumokuakea National Marine Monument. I can't believe you can say that. <laughs> How about I can't that? even say that. <laughs> and, and it was outside of uh, northwest of Hawaii. And then President Obama added to it. So we've added almost 700 million acres of marine area out in it. So it would be the northwest uh, northwest of Hawaii, and it is, it's, again, it's unspoiled area, and so as a marine protected area, it's, it's protected from over-harvesting and commercial fishing and things like that, um, but, I mean, that's the last frontier that, that needs, that, that is important to be protected as well, but, so you have marine monuments, and then you have, you have uh, land masses that are national wildlife refuges, and they're scattered in every state, um, and, the purpose of a national wildlife refuge, which makes it different from a national park or a forest service land, is that when that land is set aside, it has a particular mission for it. And normally that mission is something to do with promoting and preserving and protecting wildlife, the wildlife that use it. 
Most of the refuge historically, when President Roosevelt started creating the refuges, where they were they were established for migratory birds. So what we find out with with a, a lot of wildlife is that they'll nest in Canada in the summertime, and then they come down in the wintertime because it's so cold up there and there's no food. So they migrate down and they spend their winters in Louisiana, Florida. Uh, they may go into Central America. But all along that way, they have to find places to rest and to feed and to... Um, to be able to make that long migration. And so refuges were established along these, what they call flyways. There are, there are set corridors, which birds tend to follow. And there's four major flyways across the North America that the birds will tend to follow. And so refuges provide important places. Sometimes you have, like up in the panhandle of, of Florida, you have birds that have come all the way from South America and they've traveled over the entire Gulf of Mexico and they land exhausted on the, you know, the panhandle of Florida and they land on national wildlife refuges and other public lands. But that's a chance for them to rest, gather more energy, and then be able to make the migration further up and then nest further up in, in North America. So it's, the refuges were first established for, for waterfowl, for migratory birds, for songbirds. And then lately in the last, oh, I'd say in the last several decades, refuges are being set aside because of the uh, for endangered species. So you have here in Florida, you have uh, the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge. You have the Key Deer National Wildlife Refuge. Um, you have refuges established up in Alaska for the polar bear. So, okay. um, so it's, for, it's to protect and provide habitat and areas for endangered species or for critical, uh, critically important habitats that are being lost to development and other reasons. Well, how in the world is the, does the bird know that it's actually on what, uh, refuge land? Well, we, yeah, it doesn't doesn't know how to read a boundary sign, of no, course. I'm but sure. but I mean, what they're looking for is, I mean, it's ingrained in them. There are certain places that they look go, for yeah. that they're going to get their food, whether it be uh, insects or it be um, seeds or whatever it might be. And so when they find a lot, a lot of, uh, so for waterfowl, for example, or shorebirds, they need wetlands. So we manage, uh, as a former refuge manager myself, we would take and we would, we would manage the impoundments or wetlands and adjust water levels so that you would have the water drop down and either expose muddy flats for shorebirds to feed because they have to probe in the soil to get insects That's that are true. down below surface or we would plant uh, food or plant, let natural uh, vegetation come up and then you flood it, and then the birds, waterfowl love it. They come in, they need a shallow area to just tip over and, and feed on, on whatever it might be, the seeds or whatever. So That's extraordinary. Yeah, it's they're, really they're, fantastic. It's like the, the butterflies. Also. Absolutely. I mean, they and know they, exactly what they're looking for, it's, it's, and when they it, find it, that's where they stop. It's unbelievable, and the butterflies use the jet stream to go all the way down to Mexico. They also have a certain kind of a corridor they follow. So like with the monarch, you see them come down along the yes. East Coast, and they hit... They hit the panhandle. There are places there in Florida, and then they move over to Texas and move on down. It's just, it's amazing how wildlife works and 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 knows instinctively the ways to follow. So yeah, I agree. And you also told me an amazing story about birds who live on the sea for a year. Yeah. So those are birds that that they call a lot of those birds pelagic, meaning that they're open ocean birds. The only reason they're on land is to nest. So fascinating story. There is a bird that is out on Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge. 
The bird is named Wisdom. It is the oldest known bird in that it's been recorded. It, it it was banded when it was a chick, and it's 68 years old. My God. Now the albatross doesn't always nest every year, but she'll mate with with her mate, and so maybe every two years they only have one chick. But they believe that she just she just hatched another chick this a couple months ago. And you can keep they think it's her, they think it's the 30th bird that she has raised. So once those birds reach flight stage, off they go. And for the majority of the year, they live off of, of what they feed in the, in the ocean. And they're, they're tremendous flyers, so they can soar for hours and hours and hours. But they, their life cycle is mostly out over the ocean, and then they only come back in to be able to, to raise young. Because obviously they have to have a place to lay that egg. You know, it has to be on solid ground. They can't do it in water. So that is extraordinary. Uh, so it's amazing. Yep. And they can feed by diving. And Some birds will, will are ex- excellent divers and will dive down and, 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 and pierce their, you know, some small fish. Others are able to go along the edge and scoop up small fish. So it, they all have, they're all adapted for certain, certain ability to, to, to get the forage. And it's kind of an innate instinct. It's, a, it's right. It's an innate instinct. So it's absolutely extraordinary. It absolutely really is. So this land is owned by, I believe what you said to me was the government. Yes. So national wildlife refuges are owned by the federal government. It's Correct. the fish and wildlife service. And that's within the department of interior. So the only way that the only way that refuges are established are either through a presidential proclamation or it has been designated down to the Secretary of Interior that can help establish a national wildlife refuge. And Congress can establish refuges as well. So But for instance, they can take it away. Well, more. it's very difficult. That's the good thing about it, that when, when, it's, when, get, it's, once a, it's, once it's once it's it's set aside and it has been established officially as a National Wildlife Refuge, it takes an act of Congress to take it away, to remove it. Now, it's been done sometimes when um, a refuge, so for example, there when I was, uh, so I worked on six National Wildlife Refuges over a 30-year career before I went into our headquarters office in D.C., but when I was at Tennessee National Wildlife Refuge in West Tennessee, there had been a refuge known as Kentucky Woodlands National Wildlife Refuge. And the I, I don't know how it was decided, but the government decided to create a huge uh, area of land called Land Between the Lakes. And it was actually administered by the Tennessee Valley Authority. But there was this National Wildlife Refuge called Kentucky Woodlands. Well, they couldn't just take it. So they had to create mitigation. So what they did is they went downriver about, oh, maybe eight miles, and land was purchased, and they created Cross Creeks National Wildlife Refuge. So there wasn't a loss in Kentucky Woodlands was an important refuge for fly, as a migratory stopover for geese and ducks. That, that was uh, taken over, if you will, by the Tennessee Valley Authority, but then in its place, Cross Creeks National Wildlife Refuge was established. So there are times when, when refuges are um, traded, or if you will, or uh, the, there's it's compensation for that land being taken out of the National Wildlife Refuge system by adding a equivalent land elsewhere. So that so it's very difficult to get rid of refuges. What is happening today is the challenge of threats to to develop within a refuge. So yes, that's a right. big issue is Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It's the last, it's it's almost 20 million acres. I think I said 19.3 million. 
And it's the largest intact preserved ecosystem probably left in the world. And it's incredible. But now there's pressure to open it up to drilling. And ah, no, so that's, no, no. that's, you know, that's, that's not compatible with wildlife. And so, so the, what Congress did back in 1997 is that they created the Refuge System Improvement Act. And they made, they made it that the mission of the, of the National Wildlife Refuge System is to promote and protect fish, wildlife, and habitats for the benefit of, of the American public. And um, they basically, it created, um, required that every ref refuge have a purpose for which it's established. And then they created what they call compatibility. So we allow things to happen on refuges, but they can only happen when they're compatible with the primary use for the refuge. So that's one reason why National Wildlife Refuges um, maybe aren't as well recognized as national parks and other areas, because when, so as a refuge manager, when I came to Loxahatchee, for example, or other refuges, my primary uh, role or responsibility was to manage those habitats for the wildlife that use it. Then how can we invite the public to come out and enjoy it? So we'll provide what we call wildlife dependent recreation, uh, bird watching, hiking, hunting, fishing, photography. So what could happen on a National Wildlife Refuge, for example, is you could have a hiking trail and you get out on the impoundments and you're able to see waterfowl and birds. But during the nesting season, we might close it down because we don't want to disturb and we want the birds to nest. So for a couple months, that trail may be closed down. Once the nesting is successful, it's opened up again. So we try to do everything to make sure it's compatible with with the primary purpose of the refuge, and that's wildlife. For instance, can they canoe? But yes. that's about it. Yeah. So they... canoeing is canoeing is not. Uh, I mean, that's that's compatible. It's a quiet use. You know, using a, a an airboat, for example, in the no, refuge, no, no, a very no. noisy. Yeah. Uh, that causes a lot of disturbance. So it, it locks a hatchy refuge. We don't allow airboating in the interior. But what they did is they created a really magnificent five mile canoe trail. So you can go out there for four or five hours and you can just experience the the sounds of nature and what the Everglades is like. It's it's fantastic. It's just you have to work a little bit harder to do yeah, it. But now what worries me is the debris. Yep. That's that, a bit of a problem. It's not quite as a problem in in uh, say so I, I worked at as the manager at the Arthur R. Marshall Loxahatchee Refuge for nine years. What I found, which was always a surprise to me, was we could be out doing surveys in the middle of the refuge and you find the remains of a helium balloon. So we don't realize when we have parties, you know, here in West Palm, for example, that you have that a birthday party, that balloon goes up in the air because the helium, and then the winds come off the current, you know, the current come off the, the ocean, and where it happens, those things wind up falling into the refuge. So yeah, I, yeah. we used to pick up hundreds of balloons uh, in a given year. So that's just one example of where a lot of things are airborne or... Fortunately, we don't have a problem with with people littering because we only allow use on the in the on the canoe trail. But um, we and then we encourage people to realize that, hey, this is a special place for you and your fellow Americans. So let's take advantage. Let's let's pay respects and, and keep nature wild. Well, that's what we're trying to do because we're the Ameri the everybody's encroaching on the land that should be for exactly. nature, and exactly. because we have over a thousand people coming to Florida every, every day, day yes. we are now going to be in trouble 
with your area of expertise because of the land, for instance, for farming and things of that nature. And how do you stop these developers from encroaching on what we have as the nature, not just nature reserve because some of it is water, but the actual land is what is absolutely frightening for people. Sure. And it's, it is a conflict because people want to move. I mean, there are a lot of people yeah. that, I mean, uh, traditionally a lot of people that work up north and they want to retire We're to done. the beautiful warm climate in Florida. And, and of course, and, well, the ironic part is, is they want to come down and see wildlife. But of course, that area, they wind up living in a place that's been developed. And so, you know, wildlife has less habitat to, to, to live in. But so it's important that lands be set aside and protected. There's still, even though development is happening very quickly, the central part of um, of Florida, you know, from Lake Okeechobee up to say right. Orlando, um, when you when you drive on the Florida Turnpike and you see vast yeah. areas that are that are undeveloped, that's critical habitat, not only for wildlife but ultimately those are important areas for us as residents that live in South Florida because they help to to capture water, they help to deliver clean water. Um, I mean, a, a natural area does so much more than just provide places for wildlife. They also benefit the whole ecosystem and and they develop, develop, help us as human beings. How do they develop the ecosystem? So, you know, if you look at the example here, the you know, the Everglades historically was what they call the river of grass. And so water came, actually the Everglades starts at Shingle Creek up in Orlando. It's amazing to think that that's the headwaters for the, this incredible, unique Everglades system that eventually goes out into Florida Bay. So you have water that hits, you know, there's always like a watershed. So water comes up north of Lake Okeechobee, goes into creeks, works its way down the Kissimmee River and goes into Lake Okeechobee. Historically, that would overflow and then meander very slowly over months time down through um, west of Miami and go out into Florida Bay. Well, because of, because of significant um, flooding that had happened back in the 30s and 40s, um, and I think maybe two or 3,000 people lost their lives just south of, of Lake Okeechobee, the, the state petitioned the federal government to help us help us not have these terrible problems from flooding. So the Corps of Engineers did a masterful job of designing a system to whisk uh, floodwaters away. So they created a dike around the Herbert, it's called the Herbert Hoover Dike around Correct. Lake Okeechobee. Which I thought had problems also. Well, it's been having problems because it's been there for so long that that it needs to be rebuilt. And they were concerned about the yeah. integrity of the levee to be able to hold high water levels. So. So they're in the process. It's taking years and it's yeah. very, very expensive, but they're redoing and strengthening that levee. So when was it built? Uh, I would say, you know, that's a good question. I'm, I'm guessing back in the 50s. Yeah. I so so what they did is they designed this system of not only the dike, but they created four major canals. So the West Palm Beach Canal that runs along and, and empties into the Lake Worth Lagoon. There's, there's another one there. There's one just south of Loxahatchee Refuge, and there's two more. So all these different drainage systems drain into this major canal, and that water goes to tide. But is that clean water, dirty water, well, rain water? It, probably back in the 50s, it was very clean water because yeah. there was no development, and there wasn't a, a problem from that perspective. 
Um, but what happened is, is as they did that, then they started realizing you could continue to do all kinds of sub-ditching and draining. And that's how basically the the Everglades was converted to farming, primarily sugarcane farming. But there's there's rice farming. There's there are some lands out there west of West Palm Beach that are used for the for turf for grasses. So that when we develop, we know we want to put grass in our yards. Well, that's that. There's acre after acre of turf grass farms out out west. So, but you have to drain, drain that water yeah. off so that you can grow your sugarcane, your rice, your grass. And the problem is, okay, if you don't, so what they did is they also built three enormous impoundments. They call them water conservation areas. And, and what they do is they realize that they have to hold some of that water for during the dry time period. There has to be water, drinking water for the public and for other needs. So since it was a federal project, there was a law saying that if you're, if the federal government is going to work in wetlands, they have to do an analysis to try to mitigate for that. And as part of the mitigation for this complete alteration of the Everglades, uh, the, both the federal government and the state agreed to create a national wildlife refuge. And so that's what the Arthur R. Marshall Loxahatchee Refuge is. It's an overlay of 145,000 acre impoundment. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's 20 miles long and 12 miles wide, just to give you an idea. And that's the smallest of the three conservation areas that that was built. And people can or cannot go in there? They they can go in there. We now, the refuge is open. The levee's open for hiking and bicycling. Um, you can use the perimeter canal. Motorboats can go in there. There's a five-mile canoe trail. Um, Aren't there alligators in there? Oh, yeah. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Plenty of alligators. That's one reason why people come to the refuge is to see is to see alligators. Scares the yeah. bejesus out of me. <laughs> I don't know if anybody would want to do that. Well, I, I prefer to look at a picture. They want to see them from a distance, but they still are fascinated by the by the alligators. Well, they so. eat people. <laughs> well, like they it. they they really don't. The the the, the problem the, the time that alligators become the most um, problem is if you get around their nest. So mama alligator doesn't like anybody trying to get near the nest that she's created to produce young alligators. So if you get near her, she's going to get... But I mean, these stories of these little kids playing in the shore and then... Well, what happens is there have been some examples. There was, you're right, there was one up in uh, Disneyland or whatever in which um, a young child... But what happened is... In fact, when I was at Ding Darling Refuge, there had been some situations in Ding which. Ding Darling. So I worked on J N Ding Darling Refuge That's on the Sanibel. Funniest name I ever yeah, heard. but it's named after a, a famous uh, individual. His name was J Norwood Ding Darling, and oh he was God. the first. I think probably the first director of the Fish and Wildlife Service. But he was a renowned artist, and he used to do editorial cartoons. And he would, he would talk about and and do cartoons about what was happening with you know, massive development and destroying wetlands and, and destroying habitat for waterfowl. He created the first um, duck stamp. So what happens is when a waterfowl hunter wants to hunt, you know, go out and hunt for waterfowl, he or she has to buy a duck stamp. That money in turn goes to buy new lands. That's how a lot of National Wildlife Refuges are created, is funding that comes from, from purchases of duck stamps. Where do you get the stamp? You can get it at any post office. You can go Still. to any, yep. You can go to National Wildlife Refuge. I think you can probably order it online. And so oh, we really? encourage we encourage everybody to buy a duck stamp, birders and so on as well because even uh, if you don't go. Yeah, because now now I see bird watchers that actually are very proud to display the duck stamp as part of they have a little way to hang it off of their their binoculars. But 
the duck stamp dollars go for additional land acquisition. It's a dollar. It's fifteen. Well, now it's twenty-five dollars. What? Yep, twenty-five dollars. One stamp. One stamp. But just think what it's not. I mean, think how it's much it costs. Think how much it costs to go watch a movie, you know, and buy popcorn and and do whatever. Yeah. Here you have a stamp that you can use for the entire year. So um, that's a great idea. Yep. Yep. And it was this Ding Darling. That well, Ding Darling was the, he helped, just <laughs> he created, he, he designed the first duck stamp. And ever since then, it's become quite a competition. There's actually, it, um, there's a competition every year for a new design, one, for a new one. And they're absolutely beautiful. But, um, and usually the award-winning artist, uh, it's usually by the time of the selling and the reprints of all of his or her designs, they they usually can make at least a, like a million dollars off of their sales. It's it's quite the competition. So but, it's a collectible. Item. Oh, absolutely. There are people that do that collect. They've collected every every duck stamp since it was first. Uh, when was it first created? No. Oh, I guess great, by Ding Darling. I well, guess. yeah, it was a great question, and I can't. I don't remember exactly oh, when that was done. I think it's absolutely fascinating. But it's fascinating. But that's a great way that that hunters and conservationists can help contribute is that buy a duck stamp that all goes for, for land acquisition. So these hunters are basically hunting what? Well, they're hunting, they're hunting <clears throat> waterfowl. So the Fish and Wildlife Service determines through surveys every year, they go up and do surveys on the nesting grounds, they do surveys on you know, in the flyways and they said, okay, we have, um, a really abundant population of, of waterfowl. So they then work with the states and set a framework for the amount of, of waterfowl, of species that could be harvested. So if the mallard population is doing extremely well, they may say you're allowed to have a season that runs from October 1 to December 31st, and you're allowed to take two mallards a day. Um, they may look and say the pintail population is doing very. There, at one time, the canvasback duck was was not doing very well, so they were not allowed to be harvested. So it's incumbent upon a hunter to know his or her he he or she has to know how to identify a, a, the bird species before they shoot it. They just can't shoot it and say, "Oh, I thought it was a uh, uh, I thought it was a mallard." I think binoculars come in really handy. Yeah, you for do. Those. So so they set a framework for the amount of you know, the season, and then the states regulate that as well. So um, it's all done through science and and looking at what the populations are doing. It's incredible because it's a big job. It's a huge job. To control job. all this and to control what they're killing and what they're not killing. And I'm in love with the stamp. I got to go buy one. Yeah. And you can actually use them on your, why would you want to put them on an envelope in the mail? No, no, you don't. You don't want, That's not what it's for. You would, so you're required if you're out waterfowl hunting, and say you're hunting in Florida and a Florida conservation officer stops you or a special agent from it's the like Fish and Wildlife Service, they'll can... ask you for your for your duck stamp okay. and they'll ask you for your Florida license. Usually you have to buy a a waterfowl stamp from the from the respective state that you're in as well. I didn't know that. Yep. And all that goes to help keep um, either that goes to pay for law enforcement officers, it, uh, wildlife officers, or it helps pay for that state to be able to to manage their state lands for for waterfowl and different species i think it's marvelous because people do flock to them very very often Absolutely. people come here to do these Absolutely. and you said to me that manatees were endangered i was so surprised yeah. manatees have 
Manatees are a very, I mean, they're just a, a very docile creature. They're huge. They're enormous. And so they can't get out of the way when a when a motorboat decides uh, to come. Because they float very... Uh, they're right at the surface of yeah, the water. Yeah, they're right at the surface. And now they can dive down for a little bit, but they tend to, because they come up for air. Yeah, so they like just, dolphins. Yeah. So they, um, they ease, they, so that, in fact, it's sad that they now can identify manatees by the scars on their back because of they've all been hit so many times. So that's why they instituted, um, you'll see slow and no wake zones if you're out in the intracoastal or certain areas. And the reason being is that you could see a manatee and stop or you could get out of the way and so there's there's less damage to the to the manatees. Is there manatees. a place in the reserves that we could put them? It's well, impossible to sort of pick them yeah, up. And move. No, they're impossible to move. They're just huge. Um, they're a very migratory species. So in other words, they will move. They they don't like cold weather, just like some of us Floridians <laughs> don't like cold weather. So what they'll do is if if they if they're in an area where it gets extremely cold they wind up migrating further south to warmer waters. And that's why you see them around some of the power plants. You know, some of like, yeah. there's a power plant over here um, where when it it, it it generates warm water, and so you'll see manatees by the, sometimes by the hundreds by that the flock there. By the island as yep. well. They're right, very right there. Yep. I'd see one, I'd be scared out of my mind because they're huge. Yeah, they're huge, but they're not, in fact... I know they don't do anything, yep. but just... It's, oh, I know, just the idea. Just the idea. It's sure, like having, oh, sure. this 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 shark won't do anything, I promise you. you know, <laughs> huge, huge. Well, if somebody was interested, I know you have, you have a listenership that's all around the world, but for those that might be interested, Crystal River National Wildlife Refuge, which is located, oh, I guess probably an hour, hour and a half north of Tampa, it's probably southwest of, of uh, Gainesville on the coast. There is a place called Three Sisters Springs. And it's a natural spring that during the wintertime, they'll have as many as 700 manatees. And they come in with the tide. And so they close it off. But you can, they've built boardwalks around it. So you can literally see the, it's crystal clear water. Oh, wow. And you can see the, you can see the manatees. So, there are refuges established just to help protect, them. provide sanctuary for for manatees. And they so, eat algae, basically. Um, yeah, they 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 eat um, Plankton, vegetation. Yeah, vegetation. It's vegetation. So they you know they eat things like water lettuce and and so on. But uh, yeah, they're they're veget- it's, it's hard to believe that a huge animal exactly. like that is eating is eating plants. But that's, I know. That doesn't go in the ocean. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Oh, they. Yeah. Do. Yeah. Yep. They do. Yep. They sure do. I mean, they won't go far off. You're not going to see them out off the coast, but they clearly live in 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 salt water. They're a saltwater species. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Because you know we're and Lake Worth is sort of half and half. Yep, of. right. But they love freshwater. You'll see them up if you go to Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge, where Cape Canaveral is located. You'll see them in places where there's water that comes, the fresh water that comes out like little springs. And I've been there where the manatees come in through the canal and they're up there sipping on the fresh water. It's fascinating. Oh my gosh, I'd love to have you as a tour guide for my guests who come from Europe. <laughs> I just say, oh, well, Mark will just take you Absolutely. That's it. If I'm around, like, be glad uh, to. Like, <laughs> you've got time, right? I mean, you're supposed to be watching all these That's things right. like a hawk, and here we are annoying you. Yep. Now, so with the sparrow, was in, uh, the grasshopper. Sparrow. Grass, sparrow, yes, the panther. Yep. And then you told me this hysterical thing, the little frogs. Remember the frogs that we used to dissect in the lab? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. That was so. That was an endangered species in um, in that's in India. So uh, countries around the world are all facing problems with 
with species that have either they're being overhunted, they're being, oh, for example, you know, they're taken for the, they're endangered because they're, you know, they're taking the the elephants for the ivory or whatever it might be. Uh, and the, uh, rhinoceros. Rhinoceros, same thing like that. So there was, there's a frog in India that is endangered for whatever reason, maybe habitat loss or whatever. And so I, when I worked at a refuge in Tennessee, it turned out that these frogs were being brought in through a through a commercial biological supply place for for the study frogs for for high schools or for uh, high school students. I remember. And the um, so I mean I grew up I can remember when I was in tenth grade or something and dissecting frogs, and there are plenty of frog species that that, that are not threatened or endangered, but these were being passed off as being, you know, common, common frogs, but they were endangered. And so I had law enforcement authority at the time. And I worked with the special agent. We had to go in and confiscate these large oh 55 gallon drums of, of endangered frogs. Thank so. God you didn't have to use a gun. <laughs> Open the exactly, box. Exactly. That's I right. <laughs> that sounds yep. like a movie. But it... So then the sparrow, right? Yeah. So the grasshopper sparrow probably is the most endangered bird. Um, for sure in Florida, maybe in in the continental United States. It, the reason uh, a lot of these species are endangered is because they have such very specific um, habitat needs. You know, I talked about the snail kite that only feeds on snails. Well, if the snails are lost, then what, are the, what does the snail kite feed on? And uh, so the grasshopper sparrow uses only these... these um, kind of like dry prairies up in central Florida. And we're losing more and more of those areas to development. And so that's, and so, and there's other conditions. The, what sometimes when the, when you get to a small population, then you're also very susceptible to disease. So the, the grasshopper sparrow has been, you know, has lost a lot of their numbers through a various, a variety of different threats that have, that have happened. So what we're trying to do in areas such there's an Everglades Headwaters National Wildlife Refuge and areas are being set aside under easement and fee title to actual purchase and they're managing those dry prairies so that hopefully there'll be places for the grass, grasshopper sparrow to, to thrive and survive. It's amazing. It's just the butterflies. I had no idea there were these four pathways. For these animals, does do the bees use them as well? Bees, you know, uh, bees will. Um, they don't have that. That. that um, they don't f- move Fly that, that far. Much they right, they're very local. So they're as pollinators. They will stay within. And I'm not a. I'm not a bee specialist, but no. but they may only stay within a six to eight hundred foot area of the beehive. But there may be sixty thousand bees to a hive. But so that's why they're such important pollinators is because there's so many of them for the ecosystem right right and that's why what you see is that you see um um uh, uh, honeybee producers that have hives they move their hives to different places rather because the bees can't move so but um yeah there are actual uh, you know flyways and pathways that that, and they're uh, getting endangered as well bees have been impacted because of of pesticides and different things that have impacted them and also if you see that in latin america and in africa they have these hot houses that are in full light 24 7 for flowers Mm -hmm. and we get these beautiful flowers because they are going morning noon and night well you know what it's done to the ecosystem all around it right they don't know if it's night. They don't know if it's day. They totally. don't know if they're supposed to sleep, eat. They have no idea. That entire ecosystem that relies on the cycle right. of day and night is completely in jeopardy. 
Yeah. And these the uh, these hotbeds are huge. They're huge warehouses lit constantly for the growth yeah. of flowers for right. export. Lovely idea, but what mm -hmm. are they doing to the exactly. animals? A lot of times we don't we just don't think of the consequences of decisions that we make. You know, I so understand. here we are trying to. We think it's a good thing, but we don't realize, we probably should have, that you can't have daylight all day long and expect species that are used to night and day to suddenly be able to... Well, it ruins the egg. The, these people don't know when to lay eggs. They don't know what they're doing. They're exactly. completely confused. They're having a, they have a headache, basically. <laughs> exactly. I just No, but the, the human impact on our planet is really a disaster, and people need, uh, humans need to really be careful because the best thing to do for nature is to leave it alone. And we tend to get put our noses in it and do all sorts of things and remove their habitat. And we are creating a disaster for our grandchildren. And so, absolutely. And probably half of it won't even exist anymore. These animals are going to become extinct from what we are doing to them. Yep, exactly. Now, something that didn't go quite right was this uh, red tide that happens occasionally. Let's talk about uh, all the farmland that is out west sort of in the... Wellington area mm -hmm. that used to be all marshlands from what I understand. Yep. So I mean the Everglades the Everglades at one time there was close to four million acres. Oh. And now we're down to less than two million. We've lost we've lost over half of it to to yeah. diking and draining and then farming and um and then development. So even if you look at some of the places in west of Fort Lauderdale, you know, they built out further and further west because they were able to drain it and then it has to be impounded to keep, you know, so keep water out from coming into those areas. So, um, so we've lost a tremendous amount of of land that historically was part of the Everglades. And at that time, people thought the Everglades was worthless. And now we're realizing not only is it an international treasure, but that water is important for our for for human for human lives and for all kinds of wildlife to live and survive. So. So I understand that the, the nitrogen and the phosphorus are not so good. And now the water is, is not really good in Florida. I mean, it has to be recycled. And you said very intelligently that we should store it in specific areas rather than having it run over and killing all these beautiful fish and turtles. I mean, that was... So, so what, it, what happens is, well, even we're guilty with uh, what they call non-point solution. You wind up, uh, you wind up, even when we put pesticides out on our yard yeah. our grass to make it look nice and green you have a rainfall and, and that leaches that... it all off and yes. it goes into our sewers and then from there it goes out into canals and therefore it goes gets dumped out into into the everglades but so what was happening is in a lot of places because of the canals and things like that that are the direct pathways you've got polluted water full of nitrogen and other things it's... that goes into the the main canals like the st Lucie waterway and the caloosahatchee waterway and that is what, so red tide is a natural phenomenon. It, it is usually periodic, but it gets, um, it gets extra energy or it gets exacerbated because it's being fed the type of stuff that makes it grow like crazy. And, and just, it's, it takes over. And then it winds up because it, it uses up oxygen and everything else. It kills fish and, you know, all the huge problems it, that's occurring. It breaks my heart. So what we've, we've got to find a way. Yeah. Okay. So, so one of the things that, you know, there are, it's going to, there's not one easy fix to solve the problems. I mean, this is such an engineered system in South Florida that there's no one quick, easy fix. There are a lot of good ideas being done. There's talk about having a big reservoir, an additional storage reservoir to, to be built south of Lake Okeechobee, which is important. 
where we're focusing is in the headwaters above Lake Okeechobee. So these ranchers, these ranch lands, um, they're able to, uh, they can create wetland areas that can help capture water and store it. And not only is it stored, but, but while it's there, it also gets filtered out, you know, nutrients and stuff gets filtered out by the vegetation. So you have much cleaner water that's eventually going into the rivers and creeks and working its way out to the ocean. So we're going to do something about it. So well, that's it what we're trying to do. So that's part of what we've been working with in Florida. We have a, a full-time uh, uh, Florida program director, Julie Morris. And so she works on uh, conservation planning and she works with other scientists that help to, to evaluate these lands that are still uh, undeveloped and identifies the the key areas that have the best biodiversity that are important, say for grasshopper sparrows or for waterfowl. And so what then we do is we're also trying to to lobby, if you will. We're trying to get the state legislature in Tennessee in Tallahassee and the federal government to set aside more dollars for land acquisition. And there are two ways to go about doing that. One is, you know, a, a landowner might say, you know what? I'll sell you my property. And so to the government, to the government or in this, in, it can also sell it to the state. Sometimes it's the state. Sometimes there are some other conservation organizations that will buy the land. Do they get a tax break? In some cases they do. That's right. There are tax incentives. Um, so you can, they could sell the property or what is becoming very popular is these are ranchers that are sixth and seventh generation ranchers. They're great, 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 great granddaddy farmed and, and, and managed cattle on the land. And they continue to do that. They love, they love it. And the problem is, is they're concerned about the, the fact that, you know, when they die, the taxes are so um, bad on those lands that they, they almost have so much. Right. Acreage. So they have to sell some of that in order to pay for the estate taxes. So this way, um, through federal and state programs, uh, we can come in, we can work with the rancher and say, uh, either through a, a federal program, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, or uh, there's a wetland reserve program, the, the state has different programs. They can come in and they will literally pay the rancher to not develop. So all we're doing is buying the development rights. I think they were called easements. They're easements, water. right. So it's a conservation easement. It allows the landowner to continue to manage his or her property and have the cattle on and have cattle and do prescribed burning and have wetlands. And all we're saying is you can't develop it. And most of those ranchers are wonderful. saying, yeah, the ranchers are saying, I don't want to develop it. You know, it's been in my family for seven generations. I want to keep it going. So it's a win-win. It's a win-win for habitat, for wildlife, for the ranchers and for us as the American public, because that's, that's land that's being protected. Well, it's kind of difficult with the, with the children, and then they all start fighting, and they want to. Sometimes, keep them yeah. Sometimes because you have multiple siblings, and some don't want to keep it farming, and and sometimes, you know, development makes an offer that you know a landowner can't refuse. But right. but what happens is that the way that the it's evaluated for either uh, outright fee title acquisition or through easements is they do appraisals. And so they appraise the property and then the state or federal government says, here's the fair market value of your property with the development rights taken off of it. It's so much an acre. And then the, the rancher or landowner can say, give me more. I'll do it. Or no, that's not enough. I'm not going to do that. So, 
And uh, what is an easement exactly? Well, just an easement is a formal written document oh, that I comes see. in and says, you know, you, the state of Florida or the federal government and Mr. Jones have agreed that this 400 acre parcel of land will not be developed. There's certain stipulations. They can still manage the property for a and variety of reasons. That's all spelled that. out. It's in a legal written document that I both see. parties sign. So he or she continues to be the landowner and they get to manage it and use it, but they just can't, they can't develop it. I think that's great. So I didn't realize, but you told me today, 12th largest cattle ranching. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, Florida has a large, um, has a, has a significant number of cattle ranching in the state. Texas, I think is number one. Overall, Florida is probably 12th in the nation. Now that said, there are some some cattle operations that are in the top twenty five producers in the country. But it's amazing that some of these some of the families here have. There's one uh, family farm that's fifty five thousand acres, and they wow. do an, they do a beautiful job of managing a mosaic of. I mean, they have forested areas and and you know, pasture and wetlands. And the cattle thrive there. Giraffes in there. <laughs> well, we want, we don't want to bring any exotic wildlife in. We just want to keep the native <laughs> wildlife there. So, um, but yeah, so there are some places where you have uh, some of the cattle. It's called cow calf operations. These are these are ranchers that are raising young cattle either for beef production or sometimes they they raise cattle for sale to for other ranchers to begin a you know supplement their their cattle population that's something i don't think many floridians know about no it's you don't think about it because why do you come no. to florida you come to florida for for the the beaches and and the warm weather and disneyland and, and golfing and, and uh, wildlife watching right. and right but i mean cattle hello i was shocked when i drove one hour up from here and everybody was in a truck with a Cowboy hat, cowboy boots, blue jeans, and a gun. Yeah, you would think you, when you think about an hour. when you think about ranchers, you tend to think of them being out west. But yeah, it's amazing. It, There's some fantastic pictures that have been been taken where they do cattle drives, and you see it's right here in Florida. They're on horses. They've got yeah, their yeah. their cowboy hats to help protect them from the sun, and they're literally moving cattle from one area they may move them you know uh, several miles to another pasture it's so, like sheep with ireland yeah, we have yeah it is so it's it's quite um and this is something that they've been doing now for you know six hundreds. seven generations it's amazing. yeah hundreds and hundreds of years yep all over the place it's pretty cool pretty cool i think that's pretty cool and yep. i wish they could just clean up the seaweed and the garbage from the of the beaches, that would be kind of nice. That would be nice. Too, and there yeah. was a program at one point that did that. And for some reason, I don't know what happened to it. But and the people pick it up. And then, mm-hmm. you know what? I did it when I was much younger. Sure. And I would walk on the beach with yep. plastic bags. They yep. were so full. I could back the next day and I was, no. Back it over was again. Because it's being washed in again. So that's, uh, yeah. it, uh, yep. And that's where we're guilty, whether things get, dumped off of cruise ships or boats or whatever, but that just comes in. So. It's terrible what it happens. Is. We are, the humans are really not aware of the climate change, that we're affecting the climate change, which is going to cause a tremendous amount of problems. And I think our listeners should really watch this uh, Netflix movie called Our Planet. And it really shows you what we've done to the horror of the, of the, of their, of the lives of the animals, the warming of the water, the the ice flows melting 
the animals have no place to um, walk and nest. And so now they're on rocks instead of ice. Mm -hmm. And you can see these chunks of ice in this movie, oh, Our yeah. Planet, yep. where they just are falling and falling. And the right. ice is so important because it deflects the sun or back up. Mm -hmm. Whereas if there's water, it absorbs it. And that's, and the warmer water gets warmer, and that's when the ice starts to melt, and that's where the life of the animals are in danger sure. because they don't yeah. know where to go. And then that huge volume of water that now, instead of being frozen, is, is, is now, liquid, which is causing, which is exacerbating sea level rise. It's so. terrible. I went to the Galapagos, and I was very, very interested. I mean, they had, it was all just wildlife. And each island sort of had their own little wildlife. Well, the tectonic plate of the earth has moved these islands almost a foot, you know, half a foot a year up north, oh. which is extraordinary. And is. Uh, we saw the most incredible birds I've never seen in my life called blue-footed boobies, and they really have blue feet. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they're left alone, but it's everything's moving, moving north. Again, climate change. Which is very, very terrible. We've uh, you all have got to get rid of plastic. We have to get rid of plastic. It's there's an entire continent of plastics every uh, in near Asia, which is catastrophic. I mean, we're not talking a village here, a continent, and we have to get rid of plastics, plastic bags. You know, I mean, that's a fini. It's finished. You can't have them yeah. anymore. You know, what's along those lines? What I was thinking about that with these birds, these pelagic birds that yes. live out. So what they're finding again on Midway Atoll Refuge, they'll find they're finding more and more birds that are dying. They're they're dead on the beach. And when they do necropsies to open them up to see what was the cause of death, plastic. they're just covered. I mean, they're just lined with all kinds of plastic balls and plastic material that that's what's so killed the them. Fish. It's terrible. Yeah, exactly. Plastic has got to go. Straws, especially, are very easy to change. There's a company called Haystraw, <coughs> which are made out of wheat. And now they have uh, the paper straws aren't so great because you're using paper, which means you're destroying a tree. You don't want to do that. And they don't set up. But you also have metal straws, but you have to keep them. You can't just throw them out. Those are wonderful. But non-plastic materials have got to be used in any capacity or another. I wish we could find something that would paper, okay, but wish we could find something that would really work, uh, that would be biodegradable and not take 100 years to biodegrade. That's right. That's right. Anyway, we, we face so many problems that everybody so has to challenges. be extremely yep. aware. Extremely sure. aware. And please watch this movie. Now, the, th this, what uh, Mark is doing, is, is extremely exciting in terms of pres preservation. And I really think that we have to help, and we want to have our listeners listen, how to help fund this organization, which is in great need of saving what you love the most. Sure. So how do we do that? And how do well, I get my listeners to do sure, that? Sure, thank you. So, I mean, the National Wildlife Refuge System operates basically on funding that the, the government provides them, okay? So... But what we do as an organization is that we we lobby, if you will, we advocate for how important these national wildlife refuges are. And then we go to Congress and we say, Congress, you need to fund at a higher rate. So the refuge system has experienced you know, funding cuts over the last nine years. And so what we do is we we have paid staff that are working to try to educate congressmen on how important the refuge is in their backyard, in their congressional district, and how important the refuge system is as a whole, and to try to get more funding. We're, 
So we're advocating right now that the president's budget is uh, $503 million for the refuge system. We're asking for $586 million, but yeah. we need more biologists. We need more uh, visitor services folks that can help provide interpretive opportunities for the public. So, But we are also a nonprofit organization, so we only operate based upon the kind of funding we can receive. And so we're always looking for donors and foundations and stuff to help us. So uh, you can go to our reps website, which is www.refugeassociation.org, uh, and they can learn more about our organization, and they can there's a place there where they can donate. Um, but we have, you know, our job is to try to get more funding for the refuge system and also to defend the integrity of the refuge system when there's threats to try to drill in a refuge or oh, yeah, to yeah. or to uh, do some other kind of harmful activity. We're there trying to to tell Congress or legislators, no, you shouldn't do that. That's not compatible. So our, our mission is to fund and and then defend well, the refuge system. Well, of course, you get different things. Like Governor Christie, didn't he take away some money that had been advocated? So there had that's in the state of Florida. That's more, but that's I where understand. Julie would. That's where Julie would be working. At one time, Florida probably had one of the most progressive land acquisitions program. I think they set aside three hundred million dollars yes, a year just me. for for state land acquisition, and they created a magnificent mosaic of state management areas and parks and so on. But that's and, been cut and, down to maybe thirty million a year. And the governor Christie took it away. Yeah, and it just hasn't been restored. So now, you know, that's something we want to. We keep on working at Tallahassee. We work in D.C. trying to have people understand just how important these these lands are for wildlife first, but they're also important for the public. So, and what are we going to do with a thousand people a day moving here? That's that's a problem. And that's more pollution. That's more. You know, water. Yeah, so you're taking carbon dioxide. Even for the water map where we live, right here, say in South Florida, the system that was designed um, was never designed for the number of people that are living here That's now. Correct. So area areas that used to be able to maybe absorb some of that water, if there correct. was a wetland here, now has been paved over. So you're oh, going yeah. from semi-permeable surfaces to totally impervious surfaces. You get that runoff of fertilizer and everything else. It hits streets, and where does it go? It's got to go into canals. So, so it's a it's a huge problem when you have development because um, we're completely altering the the way water moves and things like that. It's a disaster. Carbon dioxide is everywhere. Now, the good things about trees is that they absorb it. Correct. But no, in the Amazon, they're cutting those trees down, which is meaning That's more correct. heat is rising because of the fact that the trees don't protect. And we are ruining our air by all of the cars, all of the emissions from the from cars as well, and from the emissions of the. For instance, China is now on coal. Of course, England was until Margaret Thatcher put a stop to it, which caused a great problem. But coal is the worst pollutant ever, mm -hmm. and they are going to be building another two hundred facilities for coal mm -hmm. well hello i mean the best the best place to the best energy for us is natural gas which united states has ample 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 and we have to use natural gas in order to not pollute the air and we need to have much more advocacy on that sort of thing and it's sort of part for you because the animals are going to die they're going to die breathing this crap 
They're going to die of ingesting. Look at the fish are dying with plastics in them as well. Mm -hmm. So we're endangering life, species, our life, our children's life. And I think that's a horrific thing. And I'm so glad that there's so much awareness now. 20 years ago, nobody was talking about it. 30 years ago. And now everybody's starting to say, wait a second, climate change is happening. People want to deny it. They're idiots. It is a true fact that it is happening. And if you don't believe me, go see Netflix movie, Our Planet. It's actually the most beautiful movie I've ever seen. And it makes you cry. Mm -hmm. It is of what we've done. Our Planet is amazing. It's in a four-part series, beautifully filmed. And it explains what is going on over there where people are not even living, but the animals are, and they can't even live there. It's a tragedy. But anyway, I'm so glad that you came and gave us such an important information because everybody's becoming aware and we're making a, making this sort of, to me, it's a big priority. Absolutely. Saving animals, saving all sorts of, it's about what we need to do to preserve our ecosystem from disintegrating. And that's a very important thing. Absolutely. So thank you so much for giving us all this information. Thank you, Miss D. I appreciate the opportunity to, to visit with you. Well, absolutely, it's wonderful. And I'm not, it's not just our country. No. It's all Around over the, the world. world. Absolutely. I mean, England and this and France and Japan, and they're all suffering the same problems that we are. We are. It just so happens I'm talking about it in this country because it's very specific, and I've got the head man to tell me. <laughs> but it's a real world, worldwide dilemma. It is. So I'm so glad that I got to put this on the show, and I'm so glad that I now understand a lot of the things that people are trying to do. Super. I think it's great. Thank you so Thank much. You. you keep doing your work. Thank you. I will. I don't know how you can keep up a family running around all over place where you do. Your wife must be going, uh, just send me a postcard. <laughs> right. <laughs> See you later, honey. Right. Gotta go. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, where do you live anyway? I live just outside, southwest of Atlanta. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yep. You do travel a lot. Yep. So I, the Atlanta airport is... Uh, I Your can favorite fly, place. Yeah, I can fly just about anywhere from Atlanta. So. Well, you don't have a southern accent. That's sort of funny. Well, sometimes I do, but sometimes <laughs> I guess how I'm, who I'm talking the most with. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Well, anyway, we please be aware of the wild refuge because you go all over. I mean, yours is not just here, but it's, 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 it's worldwide because the movie was also done with the... Life, uh, wildlife uh, fund worldwide, yeah. correct? I mean, it's important to recognize that, that species, uh, especially birds and so on that migrate, they don't stay to one country. So they migrate from, right. from Canada all the way to South America. And so we as, you know, worldwide citizens need to be working together to, to preserve and, and manage lands for the benefit of species, not only in their country, but that benefit Every species, country. every other country. So, and that's why we see more and more of that. The Fish and Wildlife Service has a, a division of of international conservation. Right. I've been on places where uh, refuges where we've brought in, say, uh, biologists from China or um, Russia that will come in and learn about some of the wetland management that we do here in the United States, and then uh, we'll have a contingent of people that will go over to see what they do. So. We share this, you know, what are the similar kind of problems and we learn techniques that they're doing that maybe we could do in our country. So, yeah, it's uh, we're doing more and more to to interact with, you know, fellow citizens around the world because it's it's a it's a international issue. I agree. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This was really important. And uh, my motto is lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. 
Have a wonderful day.